We are in Pirkei Avos, Perik Sheni, the second chapter, Mishnah Hay, the fifth Mishnah we learned, most of the Mishnah already, Hillel said, Hillel Omer, Al Tifrash Menetzibur, Al Tamil Batzimcha, Ad Yom Moscha, Al Tadnes Chavercha, Ad Shetigil, and Makomo. We learned all that already. Now it's incumbent on us to learn the last part of the Mishnah, two more statements that Hillel made. Each one of these statements is a Mishnah in and of itself. Hillel said, Al Tomer Dover, I'll translate that in a moment. Hillel said, the first thing, there are two um, versions of this mission. Let's learn first the first version, which is, don't say something that it's impossible to hear. I'm going to say this out and nobody's going to hear it. No one will get wind of it. It will eventually be heard by other people. That's the first version of the Mishnah. And let's understand that part of the Mishnah uh, first, okay? Um, once you have a secret, once you say a secret, then the secret uh, just gets out. It gets out. You know, the Chavetz Chaim used to say about Lashon Hara, Chavetz Chaim, somebody wants to ask the Chavetz Chaim, why is it that the the, uh, the Veira of Lashon Hara is so serious? The Chavetz Chaim dedicated a good portion of his life to writing books about the prohibition of Lashon Hara. Why is it so important? So uh, he said that this man said to the Chavetz Chaim, like every other transgression of the Torah, if a person transgresses, you do tshuva, you repent, and you uh, you go on your way, as the Torah says. You make up not to do it again. So the Chavetz Chaim said that here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to go to the marketplace. Every little village, Raden, Eishashok, Sultanashok, these were the little villages around Raden, had marketplaces, and people would bring their wares to the marketplace. The marketplace was an open square and usually took place on a Thursday, and there were stalls set up in the perimeter of the marketplace. People would walk around and they would and they would uh, they would they would they would buy, they would sell, there's all sorts of things. I want you to go to the marketplace to the open square on a windy day, and I want you to bring a feather pillow. Then I'd like you to shake out the feather pillow and let all the feather feathers fly. Right? And, we, and apparently in the market area, since it was wide open, and Rodden was a my, my grandmother was born in Rodden. Um, she grew up in Rod, she lived in Rod. It, it, it was a very small village surrounded by, by fields. And it was very, uh, it was very windy because there was nothing really to block the wind. So go open up the, your, your, uh, your feather pillow in the marketplace and the wind will scatter all the feathers. Then, feathers. then I want you to pick up every single feather and put it back into the pillow. So the man said, that's impossible to do. So Chavetz Chaim said, that's what Lashon Hara is. When you say something, it scatters all around, and it, it's impossible to collect all the pieces and put them back. One person tells another, who tells a third, and even and today it's even worse. You have these vehicles like email, Twitters, and who knows what else they have today, on Facebook, and, uh, uh, you know, one thing I could say about myself, Baruch Hashem, I'm not on Twitter, and I've never, how do you say it, tweeted, tweeted, or tweeted? I keep forgetting. I've never uh, tweeted in my life, and on Facebook, whatever the verb is for Facebook, I never posted on Facebook in my life. But, you know, I do use email, and um, things can get around. You could say something here in Hollywood, and something can get out to Australia in, in, in less than a minute. It can be all around the world in five minutes flat. So you can't get it. So don't say that I'm going to say something. 
and it's never going to be heard because the fact of the matter is that very often it is heard. And I have to be careful with what you say, especially in in uh, in, in, in these times. In these times, it, it, it's uh, very difficult. You know, people are upset about the elections, and some say that the Trump people are 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 just are wrong. They're catching in the and the, and they're trying to undermine the uh, the um, the election process, and others say that the election was stolen, and people are talking about all sorts of violent things. People shouldn't be talking this way. It's a silly thing to talk this way. It's not certainly not for us Jewish people to talk about it, and the person has to use seichel to understand that something that a person says will reflect badly, not just on himself, but reflect badly on the entire Jewish nation. So you got to be careful about, about what you say. Um, the Gemara tells us a story. It's above a Basra, it's a Gemara that tells us a very interesting story. Herod, or Hordus, as he's called, was uh, he was a very wicked and evil king. And at one point, he killed all of Chazal. All of the members of Chazal, he killed out. All of the Torah sages, he, he destroyed. Um, and he was a slave, he became king, and he was always very insecure about the, the substance of his kingdom, and he didn't want any challenges. And um, and uh, there's, there's a passage that says that um, put a king on yourself from among your people. Don't put a king among yourself from somebody who's a slave. So Herod said, since our sages expound the Torah that way, I am going to kill him. He killed all the sages. He kept alive one. His name was Bava ben Buta. And this, he kept him alive because he knew that the sages, Chazal, are, were very, very wise, and he simply needed one of them alive for advice. But he wanted to weaken him, so he had him blinded and placed into a prison. He figured when he needs him, he will, um, he will have him. So um, one day, Herod, in his insecurity, wanted to uh, check the loyalty of the sages, he wanted to check the loyalty of Baba ben Buta. So he dressed like a peasant, and he had himself prearranged with the warden. He had himself thrown into prison uh, alongside Bava Ben Buta, um, uh, uh, pretending that he was a prisoner as well. So, you know, every prisoner obviously always catches about the authorities, and you put him to prison uh, wrongly. So uh, he, he presented himself. He was there by Bava Ben Buta, and he was catching. He said, did you see what this... Uh, horrible king uh, Herod is is doing terrible thing. So um, Baba Buddha said, so what's to be done about this king? So Herod said, curse him. Curse him. You're a great sage. You're Baba Ben Buddha. Curse him. So uh, Baba Ben Buddha says, no. He says, Gamba Mo'adacha Melech Al-Tikalel. Means even in thought, don't curse the king. Don't even, not only don't curse him verbally, don't even think about cursing a king. Well, that was a, a big uh, comeuppance to Herod. The Herod wasn't finished yet. He said, nah, this man's not a king. It, it says in the verse in Kohelis and Ecclesiastes, in your thought, don't curse a king. He's not a king. He's only a slave. So Baba Mimutha said, okay, even if he's not a king, you want to say he's not a king, but he's a rich man, right? And it says in the, the rest of the Pesach says, and even in your bedroom, don't, uh, don't curse a person of who's wealthier, meaning a person of power. Uh, don't uh, don't uh, don't curse him. And even if he's not any of that, even if he's just uh, a person who happens to be in charge right now, it says 
Don't curse a, a nobleman among a nation. So he says, well, Herod responds, he says, when he acts like a member of your nation, then you can't curse him. But this King Herod he doesn't even act like a Jew. So Baba Mbuta said, um, I, I won't curse him, I'm, I'm scared of him. So uh, Herod said, uh, you know, what, what are you scared of? It's only you and I who are present. So, uh, so Abba Mutter responded with a different pasuk. He said, "Ki of Hashemayim yolechas hakol." A bird of heaven will 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 carry the voice, meaning that uh, even if it's just you and I who are present, you should know that a secret is always going to always going to be gotten out. So I won't curse him at all. I'm not going to say anything bad about the king. So when Herod saw how stringent. The sages, even one of them, Baba Ben Muta was for not speaking badly about the king. He immediately repented. He was scared. You know, he realized that he made a big mistake killing all the members of the Chazal, all the members of the, the Sanhedrin, all the great sages. So he 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 told Baba Ben Muta, "I want you to know that I am Herod. I am the king, and I'm I, I'm very sorry for what I did, and I want to ask forgiveness. So, um, what should I do?" So Herod told him that he should begin to learn Torah and do mitzvahs, and he should build, rebuild the second base of Middash. The second base of Middash was rebuilt well before Herod's time, but it wasn't um, on a grand scale. It was a building, and Herod rebuilt the second base of Middash on a huge and grand scale, so much so that our sages tell us that Mara says, whoever didn't see the second base of Middash, in its glory, never saw a beautiful building in his, in his life. That's how beautiful it was. So I brought up this story just on this call that a person should be careful not to, um, not to, excuse me, say anything that by, uh, with the understanding that it'll never be heard. Yes, it'll be heard. It'll be heard. Be very careful with what a person says. My grandfather, my mother's father, Harav Sholem Podolevsky, my mother's father, uh, learned in the Miri Shiva back in Europe and married my grandmother, who was an American citizen. She came back to, to Europe. She was like, that was the same grandmother who was born in Raden. She moved to America, and then she came back to Europe uh, because of the Shidduch. They got married in 1937, I believe. She came back to America, and she remained in America for about a year and a half or two, and she earned the money to be able to send a ticket to her new husband, my grandfather, uh, to come to America, and uh, he managed to get to America uh, not long before the outset of uh, World War II. So um, the the, um, the he used to say in Yiddish, "Ayid daftobin avaiter cook." Now I know none of you speak Yiddish here. Maybe Andre does, but nobody else does. Ayid daftobin avaiter cook, which means a Jew has to look in the future, meaning that whatever you say or you do. You have to think about how it's going to affect yourself, your family, your children in the future. You know, um, last night somebody came to me and was talking to me about um, about uh, marijuana use in, in, in the community. And I, I was telling him that um, people think that your children, that children don't realize when they, uh, when they smoke marijuana or they overdrink or they have parties that they shouldn't have. They don't think that the children are oblivious to it and they make a huge mistake that um, they do things and they affect their children. If they would only know how horribly their children would be affected, they wouldn't do things like this. 
but people don't think in the future, they only think in the present. And that's what Mezeidi used to say, you have to look to the future. Don't think that things that you say or that you do aren't going to be gotten out. They will be gotten out. People will hear it. Now, there's another version of this Mishnah that takes out the word and it goes like this. It would be which means don't say um, that that um, if you can hear something and understand something now, don't say, nah, I'm not going to go listen to it now. I'll hear it later. Meaning, if you have the ability to go to a shear now and hear Torah from your Rav now, you say, you know what? My rabbi is giving Dafayomi. It's going to go on every single day. I don't have to join now. I'll join in a half a year from now. Or when my financial situation gets better or when I have more time or whatever, whatever, whatever. Don't do that. We have the opportunity to learn Torah right now. So hear it now rather than later. Don't push off hearing something which is positive. This is what Rashi says, how Rashi explains the Mishnah. First of all, um, the explanation is, going to Rashi, that can anyone guarantee that he or she will be alive in the future to be able to hear these positive words, the words of Torah? How do you know that you're actually going to be alive? You don't. And if a person, Shalom, passes away or becomes incapacitated, then the person will never understand that. And the Gemara also tells us a fascinating thing called Girsa Diyankisa. Girsa Diyankisa is the things that you hear when you are young imprint on you and remain with you forever. And things that are heard when you're older are not as easy to remember. If you ever see a person that, God forbid, is suffering from um, Alzheimer's or something, very often the person has a long-term memory, but not a short-term memory. I remember my grandmother, Allah Shalom, my grandmother Parnas, toward the end of her life, she suffered short-term memory. She was always very makbid on davening. She would daven shachris, mincha, mayav, especially mincha. was very big for her. She used to, she used to daven mincha every day. And uh, when she got older, she would daven mincha several times a day. And I would tell her, Bubby, I would say, the shinga daven. You know, you already daven mincha. And she would say, yeah, I daven already? I would say, yeah. And then a few minutes later, she would get up and daven again because she used to forget. And mincha was so important to her that it was on her mind. Afternoon, mincha. Kind of mincha. But um, since so she had troubles remembering what she did five minutes ago, but she remembered very clearly what happened in the past. You could talk to her about family history or anything you wanted to in the past. The so things which were a person learned when he or she is younger, they remember. And the very fact that my grandmother had imprinted in her mind from her youth how the importance of davening mincha is something that remained with her, even though it was difficult for her to remember if she actually did daven mincha or not. Um, just as an aside, once I'm mentioning my bubby, um, my bubby was a big tzedekis. Um, She passed away, I don't know if you know anybody else like this, she passed away on Matzah Shabbos, which was Matzah Yom Kippur, on her birthday. She was born Matzah Shabbos, Matzah Yom Kippur, and she passed away on her birthday, Matzah Shabbos, uh, Matsyam Kippur Hashem, she very big tzedekis, gave her a full and complete, complete life. So this is what the way Rashi understands that a person should always learn something when, uh, when you have the first opportunity to be able to learn. Now, the Rambam explains this Mishnah that uh, similar to what we learned in a different Mishnah in Perak Aleph, the first chapter, Mishnah number 11. The Rambam says that the Mishnah means to say, don't say anything that's not immediately understood and not immediately clear. 
that means that um, you, you, you might be tempted to say something and it's not clear. And it, people will, uh, will only, you figure that, you know what, later they'll understand it. But later, people might already be making misconceptions in what you said, and they might derive halachas wrongly or philosophy wrongly based on what you said. And they never correct the errors of their way. It never happens. So you have to be careful when, as far as that's concerned, to make sure that you're always able to uh, say something that's going to be very clearly understood and very clearly interpreted. Um, now, there's, the, there's another explanation to this Mishnah um, I saw that um, you should also say something. Don't, don't think that I, I'm not going to say something which is correct because people aren't going to listen to me anyway. That's not necessarily true. Sometimes if you say something, then uh, it, it, people will use it as a basis to be able to form an opinion later or be able to affect something which is good later. The Gemara tells us in Shabbos of Yudal Mabez 14b that Hillel once made a certain decree. He wanted to make a certain decree and it wasn't accepted. People didn't accept it and it wasn't, uh, and it wasn't instituted as law. But later on, his disciples made that same decree and it was accepted because the disciples understood how important it was for the great Hillel to make that decree and they did it. Even though in his time, Hillel's, Hillel, when he made the decree, it wasn't accepted, it wasn't accepted either. And sometimes a person has to say something even though you know that you're talking to the wrong audience. Rabbi Stroll Salanter uh, once spent a long time in Paris in the city of Paris. He was very disappointed with Jewish life in Paris. So, you know, there's a, there's a, he said a very witty line that was very well known. Israel Salanter said that Paris is the city with the most tefillot, the most prayer is in Paris. And Paris is well known as a city of Jews who had begun abandoning Torah and not keeping Torah and people looked at him and he said, yeah, you see, every Jew that prays in Paris, his prayers remain right there. They don't go up to heaven. So it's a, a place where there's a lot of prayers. So when Israel Zalanta came back from Paris, he went to Poland, he was in uh, Lithuania, and he called a gathering of all the Torah scholars of his day and anybody who was in the area to come and join him to talk about the importance of Shabbos. And he described, um, he, he said, the reason why I'm calling this gathering is because the situation for people uh, maintaining the laws of Shabbos in Paris is, is very poor and it's going down. And therefore I'm calling a gathering here in Lithuania. And he spoke about the importance of Shabbos and he gave a, a speech about the laws and the importance of keeping Shabbos and how central it is to the maintenance of the Jewish people itself. So one fellow said to him, uh, Rebbe, I, I don't, don't understand the speech. He said, here in Lithuania, all of us are, thank God, Torah-observant Jews, and we keep the Shabbos. So why are you speaking about the importance of Shabbos here in Lithuania? Talk about the importance of Shabbos in Paris. So Israel said, you should know that if I talk about the importance of Shabbos here in Lithuania and strengthen Shabbos observance in Lithuania, it's going to have an effect on the Jews of Poland as well. You should know that. 
that's going to have an effect on the Jews of Poland. So um, he felt it incumbent to talk about Shabbos because when you talk about it, it does have an effect. Sometimes a person has to use a seichel. You can't protest the actions of somebody in front of that person because you'll drive them further away from Yiddishkeit and there's really nothing much to do as far as that person is concerned except to wait and be makar of them and see if you could make an impression on them. But uh, you could talk to other people about it to strengthen them, to make sure that they don't go in the in the same way. And that the Gemara tells us that uh, the fact of the matter is a person has to use seichel. Sometimes a person has to know when to make, uh, when to protest and when not to protest. And sometimes a person underestimates his or her ability to protest against something. The Gemara tells us, it's based on the Pesukim in, in, uh, in Yechezkel, that Hashem came to the Navi Yechezkel, and that's uh, Gemara. Um, Hashem, in, in, in Yechezkel, Hashem told uh, Yechezkel that the, the, the Malach Gavriel is going to put a mark on the foreheads of people who are tzaddikim or righteous, and he's going to put another mark on the foreheads of people who are not righteous. And he's going to punish those who are not righteous. And he's going to not punish, of course, anybody who was righteous. So the angel Gabriel, the, the, uh, the model Gabriel, Gabriel, said to him that, um, or better yet, I'm sorry, not the angel Gabriel, the Midas Adin, the, the angel representing the judgment, said to Hashem, he protested. He said, what's the difference between these who you are not punishing and those that you are punishing? So Hashem said, these are righteous and these are not righteous. So the angel representing judgment said, but the ones who are righteous could have protested and didn't. So Hashem said, if they would have protested, it would not have helped anyway. So the angel said that uh, they didn't know that. If they didn't know that if they would have protested, it wouldn't have helped. They, as far as they're concerned, had they protested, they thought that maybe it would have helped, and it didn't, and they didn't protest. So Hashem ended up punishing the righteous as well as those who are who were wicked to begin with. So a person has to be uh, careful to be able to say what he's supposed to say in the proper time, and not to say also what you're not supposed to say in, in the uh, proper time as well. It's also important, based on this Mishnah, that a person has to say things in a proper fashion, a proper way. You know, in Yiddish, there's an expression. There's a great expression in Yiddish. I'll tell it to you in English also. A sheker tarmenishzagin. Which means that you're not allowed to say a lie, but you don't always have to say the truth. You have to know when to say what. That's part of the mission that says, don't say that things that I, uh, I, 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 I'm going to say things in an improper way. No, you're supposed to say things that people will understand it and will, and will, uh, and, and, and will relate to it. So I, I remember, you know, there was um, one of the great Rashi Yeshiva of the previous generation was Rabbi Schneer Cutler. Shneer Cutler was the Rosh Yeshiva of Lakewood Yeshiva. His father was essentially the founder of Lakewood Yeshiva of Aaron Cutler. He took over after Rav Aaron passed away in 62, I believe. And uh, Rav Schneer himself passed away in 1982, I believe. And his son today, Rav Malkiel Cutler, is the present Rosh Yeshiva. But when Rav Schneer Cutler 
had a son. His name was Mayer. I remember Reb Schneier because he was my father and he were very close friends. Um, Reb Schneier had a son by the name of Mayer. Mayer was his oldest son and he was a, a great Tamachachim, a great Torah scholar. And he was the one who was going to be taking over the yeshiva and Reb Schneier relied on him very much for doing things. He was a very, apparently, I never met him, apparently a brilliant fellow and had a lot of common sense. And he and Rav Schneier, his, his, Rav Schneier and he were very, very close. Anyway, he was married and uh, he had, he, he developed some type of cancer and he died very young. I believe he was in his young 30s when he passed away. And Rav Schneier was inconsolable. He was absolutely inconsolable. He sat Shiva in Lakewood and as the story goes, um, he sat down and he wouldn't talk to anybody. He was just sitting and people came into Menachem Abel to comfort him and he would basically not look up and he would answer questions just very, very perfunctorily, very short, and he wasn't really interested in, in talking to anybody. And in my neighborhood in Borough Park, there lived a very great and wise Hasidic Rebbe by the name of Rabbi Yisrael Shpiro. He was known as the Bluzhava Rebbe. And he had gone through the Holocaust and he was a survivor. He was very close to the Shneer Cutler. And he heard that Mepschneer was not responding to anybody who was coming to console him. So he went to Lakewood and he sat down across from Schneier and they spoke obviously in Yiddish, but this is the gist of what he said. He said to Schneier, Schneier, I'm jealous of you. This is the first time Schneier looked up. He looked at him and he said, you're jealous of me? My son just died. What are you jealous of me? So he said, I want to tell you something. I had one daughter. My wife and I had one daughter. And she was the apple of my eye. And I married her off to a great Torah scholar, a wonderful, kind, wise, geschmacky young fellow. And they had one baby, one son. And when the Nazis came into my town, they took my daughter and they took the baby and put the baby on her chest and they shot through the baby into the, my, my daughter's heart in front of me and my wife, because they said they don't want to waste two bullets on, on a Jew. And they killed both of them right in front of us. Then they killed my son-in-law. Then they killed my wife. They did this in front of me and I managed to somehow escape. He went to labor camps and concentration camps and he survived the war. He said, I don't know where my daughter, my granddaughter, my son-in-law, my wife, are buried, or even if they are buried. I have no idea. I don't remember the day in which they were shot and killed. I don't know. I don't know that. You have a, you had a son there. You know the day that he died. You can mark his yard site. You, you, not only did he, did he pass away, not only did he, did he live for a while, but he has children that you can uh, bring up, that we brought up and carry on his name. So you have a marker, you're burying him in a, in, a, in a grave. You know the date, you have a marker, you know that he's buried. He had children who are able to continue on the path of Torah. Reb Schneir, I'm jealous of you. So Reb Schneir looked up and the first time in his, during the Shiva, he responded. And that consoled Reb Schneir. You see, sometimes even a great man like Reb Schneir Cutler needs a little bit of prodding. And the Blue Rebbe knew exactly what to say and how to say it. Put your sorrow in perspective of other people 
yeah, it was a terrible thing that a person passes away, but there is a consolation that you have a, a marker, you have a yard site, and Baruch Hashem, Mayor had children who were able to continue on this path. So that's part of the mission of that. You have to know what to say, when to say it, and most importantly, you have to know how to say it. So that's what our sages tell us, that people shouldn't just blurt out anything that comes to their mind. They have to know exactly how to be able to respond to, to, uh, to, to different situations. So I'll leave you with just one other point, which is this, concerning this Mishnah, that sometimes um, it's important that people change direction in life and be able to do things differently than what they thought was correct their entire lives. And that's also part of this Mishnah, to know how to respond, when to respond, and when a time is propitious to do what. You know, um, one of the earlier day schools that is in America was founded by Reblazer Silver in Cincinnati before the war, before World War II. It's called CHDS, um, Cincinnati Hebrew Day School or Chafetz Chaim of, uh, of Cincinnati. My children, when we lived in the Dayton, Cincinnati area, went there for several years. It's a thriving day school and it still exists today. Now, Reblazer Silver was a great Talmud of Chaim Eiser, uh, in Europe, and he was sent by his Rebbe, Rabbi Chaim Eiser, to come to America to try and make an impact on American Judaism, and eventually settled in Cincinnati. He wanted to open up a yeshiva. He wanted to open a yeshiva, and he had a shul, and he spoke to his Balabatim continuously about opening up a yeshiva, raising the money for it, and his Balabatim were just not interested in him. Uh, he had this big meeting at uh, one, a certain person's home, and they were all sitting out on the porch, and they were discussing uh, opening up yeshiva and his balabantim did not want to do it. They wanted to open up a day school. That's what they wanted to open up. And Blazer Silver was said that the limited funds that we have, we need to open up a yeshiva. And the meeting ended with uh, with um, with um, no decision that they weren't going to open up a yeshiva. And people and Blazer Silver walked out of that meeting very quickly, and he left before anybody else left, okay? Um, all the other Balabatim eventually dispersed and went to their home. And when they went home, the uh, one of the Balabatim there, who was the most prominent Balabas in Cincinnati, the biggest doer in Cincinnati, as he came into uh, into his driveway, to his surprise, he sees a blaze of silver sitting on his front porch. And he says, what's the rough doing here? Blazer Silver said to him, so why don't we open up the day school? Let's start opening up the day school. So Blazer Silver realized, thinking it over, that yeshiva is not going to happen. Yeshiva is not going to happen, got to open up a day school. So they got the money together right then and there. Uh, they worked on it, and they opened up a day school, and the day school affected thousands of kids for, for, for decades and decades and decades, a very successful day school. Now, Cincinnati today, Baruch Hashem, happens to have a kolel, and it has Balabatim learning Torah, and there's more than one shul, and people are learning as a thriving community. But it, it, the, it all began with Reblazer Silver changing focus and realizing that a yeshiva is not going to happen right now. We need to do a, need to have a day school. So that's part of this mission that says also that a person has to be able to say things that are heard readily understandable and acceptable to people. And in doing that, you make a great impact on 
others, you make a great impact on Kalah Yisrael. Blazer Silver died in the late 60s, but the day school still continues and is still affecting many, many different uh, families and kids. So we'll pause here. Mitch Shem will continue next week, and I wish you a wonderful Shabbos. Any questions?